0: The Old Testament book of Esther is where we are. We are going through book by book, summarizing the books so that you get a big picture view of what each of the books is about. And today in Esther we draw to a conclusion the historical section of the books of the Old Testament. Here's the key concept in the book of Esther. God wants his people to live lives of significance. But more personally than that, we can say God wants you to live a life of significance. God has you here in this place at this time on purpose. And He is watching. He wants us to live lives of significance. Esther, in the Old Testament, uh, is a a book that still reverberates through history today. What I mean is this. In 2015, on Wednesday, March 4th, through Thursday, March 5th coming, Jews all over the world will pause, will feast together as families, they'll exchange gifts, and they'll give extra special gifts to charity because they'll be celebrating a holiday, a Jewish holiday, called Purim. And Purim comes from the events of the book of Esther that we'll read about today. Esther is a story that has all of the high drama of a riveting novel. It contains a lecherous drunken king, a scorned wife, a beautiful orphan with a potentially dangerous secret, an ambitious villain filled with his own pride. We see courageous heroes, we see romance, power struggle, legal intrigue, and even death. Now we don't know who wrote the book of Esther, the author's name is lost to us, but those who analyze the, the Hebrew of the scriptures tell us that it most likely was written soon after the events that, uh, that it describes in history, and it describes the events inside the reign of King Xerxes, king of Persia. Now some of your Bibles might call him Ahasuerus, but Xerxes is his more uh, well-known name, that's the, the Greek version of his name. Xerxes reigned, uh, his reign ended in 465 BC, 73 years after Zerubbabel went back with with the returning exiles to rebuild the city and and the temple in Jerusalem. And so this, the events of the book of Esther take place during the events of the book of Ezra. And so we get a glimpse here about what life was like back in Persia for those who did not return uh, with those who went back to rebuild the temple. We call Libya in North Africa all the way through Egypt, all the way eastward into India, through the Holy Land up north and westward through what we call now Turkey and ended at the borders of Greece. Historians tell us that there were 50 million people inside the Persian Empire at this time. Xerxes wanted Greece and so he he went to war against Greece and recently they've made some movies about that very war. Uh, One of them told the story of the battle at Thermopylae where 300 Spartans in a narrow pass held off hundreds of thousands of Persian fighters. And uh, the movies would have you think that Xerxes looked like this. I think we have, that's what Xerxes looks like in the movies. And maybe it's not too far off when you see the guy's character in this book. It goes with that look, quite frankly. Uh, But uh, Xerxes uh, led the Persians against Greece. Uh, Xerxes eventually won the Battle of Thermopylae, but he eventually lost the war against the Greeks. But as the book opens he's having a 180 day meeting with his generals and his uh, political officials and we believe that what he's discussing in this meeting is this very war this war against Greece to extend his kingdom into uh, the, uh, the land of Greece and after the 180 day meeting he throws a, a banquet a week-long drunken feast And that's where the story starts in Esther chapter 1, verse 7. We'll read it. It says, Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Now, those, who, those historians who analyze the ancient documents tell us that verse 8 is a glimpse into the culture of the Persians uh, because th- it is an exception to the standing rule. Now, whoever wrote Esther was familiar with the court of the Persians because the standing rule was this. When the king gave a feast, everybody drank when the king drank. Every time the king would take a cup of wine, everybody would have a cup of wine. Can you guess why that is? They never wanted the king to be more loaded than anybody else. That's true. And it puts him in a vulnerable situation. So when the king drinks, everybody drinks. That's the normal rule. So for the sake of headaches the next day, everybody hoped the king is a lightweight. But in this situation, the king says, do whatever you want. It tells you that he feels confident. He feels safe. These are his people. He's not trying to protect himself at all. He's in a great mood. But after seven days of feasting, his mood is about to change. Pick up verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who serve him, we won't go into their names, skip down to verse 11, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. And the king became furious and burned with anger. The king says to himself, after seven days of feasting with his generals, you know, I bet you these guys would love to get a look at my pretty wife. And so why don't you go get the queen and tell her to come on in and let everybody get a look at her. But Vashti refuses to parade herself in front of a bunch of drunken generals. But this infuriates the king. So he has a meeting. He calls his advisors. What should we do about this? And the advisors say this. Look, king, if you can't get your wife to do what you tell her to do, we're going to have problems all over the empire with everybody's wife here. You know, none of our wives are going to do what we tell you to do. So you, you're setting a bad example. You've got you to do something. And so the king divorces Vashti. And they establish a national beauty contest to find the next Mrs. Xerxes. And lo and behold, the winner is Esther who, unknown to the king, is one of the Jewish captives formerly of the Babylonians. Her real name is Hadassah. Hadassah means myrtle. Myrtle becomes the queen. What an advancement from an orphan, you know, in exile to the queen of the empire of Persia in one fell swoop. Now Esther is the queen. And when you hear wife, think head wife, because this is a harem situation. But the head wife is the queen, and now things are about to get interesting. Because there's four characters in this account of Esther. There is the king, Xerxes, main characters. There's Haman. He'll come into the story soon. He's the prime minister. Esther and Esther's cousin, a man named Mordecai. In chapter 2, Esther becomes the queen. And by, by the end of chapter 2, uh, we, Mordecai comes into the scene. We, we hear that Mordecai hears about an assassination plot against the king. Pick up the reading in chapter 2, verse 21. It says, During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. So things are going very well for Esther and Mordecai here. Esther's the national beauty queen. She's also the literal queen, the wife of the king. And now she's instrumental in foiling a plot and saving the king's life. Things are going well. But Esther has a secret, a dangerous secret. No one in the king's circle knows that she's a Jew. And into that situation enter the character of Haman. Haman is the prime minister, second in command in the nation. And Haman has two great loves in his life, power and himself having it. That's what Haman is all about. Haman is all about Haman. He is absolutely self-obsessed. And the king feeds this obsession by passing a decree that says, when Haman walks around the streets, people are to bow down to him out of respect. Respect for the prime minister and by, you know, connection, the king. And so Haman is loving this. People are bowing down as he's walking around, except for Mordecai who won't bow down. He's so offended by Haman's petty pride. He's outraged uh, that this this man won't bow down, and he learns that Mordecai is a Jew, and he decides to take his revenge, not just on Mordecai, but on all of Mordecai's people. In chapter 3, verse 6, talking about Haman, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai, Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And I want you to understand that this is the closest that the Jewish race ever came to extermination. They will be brutally uh, treated by the Greeks later on in history, and then the Romans, and then in World War II, Hitler and the gas chambers, and all of that uh, process that they went through, great exterminations and so forth, but this is the closest they ever came to being eradicated. And the reason is because every Jew lived inside the Persian Empire whether they lived in Susa whether they lived in Jerusalem or those who had escaped to Egypt they all were inside the Persian Empire and this edict was for everywhere inside the Empire that's what that's what uh, Haman wants to do you ask yourself the question what what would prompt a man to not only be offended by an individual but then to to want to kill all that individual's peace people to wipe out a whole race and the answer is Satan would prompt that make no mistake about it anti-semitism is satanically inspired it is in this day Satan is inspiring here hoping to eradicate the race who will be the source one day for the Messiah he doesn't want that to happen and later on in history still when the Jews are persecuted and and, uh, sought after to be killed it is Satan who is inspiring that to persecute them, and by association, persecute the messianic hope. Anti-Semitism is satanically inspired, and it is today, and it has no place in the life of a Christian. Haman wants genocide, but genocide is above Haman's pay grade. He's got to go back to the king. So in verse 8, then, chapter 3, verse 8, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business." So the king took his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, Uh, name, name, unpronounceable name, unpronounceable name. And then verse 11, keep the money, he said, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Here you find out that the king is not much of a detail guy. He never asks what the crime is. He never asks who the people are. He never asks, you know, really what he's talking about. He has no indication of how it will affect his favorite wife or his, his uh, hero, Mordecai. You know, all of that. Doesn't ask any of those questions. Just do whatever you want to do. And, uh, and so what happens is they determine a date at which the Jews will be exterminated. And they do that by casting lots. Remember that word. They cast lots like dice. And the date that comes up is the 13th day of the 12th month. In other words, the extermination would take place a little over a year from the day of the passing of the decree. And the proclamation goes out all across the land, and Jews all across Persia begin fasting and weeping and praying. Esther doesn't know anything about this because she's cloistered up in the castle. But she sees some of her people weeping and in mourning, and, and she sends a message to Mordecai. You know, what's up with all the weeping? And Mordecai sends a message back. This is what your husband is planning to do. You need to intervene on behalf of your people. And that brings us to rule number one by, for, by, for living a significant life. Rule number one live by God's timing. It was God's timing that Esther would be where she is at this moment. And it brings us to the quotable quote from the book of Esther. The famous verse, chapter 4, verse 14, the end of the verse, the last sentence says, Mordecai is communicating to Esther, you need to intervene. And he says, and who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. See, on on the surface level, it looks like bad timing. You know, finally her life's coming together. Finally, this orphan girl is living in the palace. She's living large. Things are great. She's the wife of the king. Everything's going her way. Why would I want to threaten all of that? But Mordecai reminds her that God has perfect timing in mind. And he has placed you for this very moment. The rule was... That when you come into the king's court and you are not summoned by the king, uh, unless he lowers his, uh, his uh, scepter to receive you, you are executed. And she didn't know how the king was going to take you know, her walking in and, and trying to ask him some questions. And so she set the time said, three days from now I'm going to try. I'll try it out. But pray for me. In chapter 5, verse 1, we see the event. It says, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court. He was pleased with her, held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And Esther sees her prayers answered, the king is in a good mood. And she's received now it strikes me that Esther knew that this moment was a dividing point in her life she recognized that this was crucial this was a crucial day but the reason I mention that is because for many of us we don't recognize the crucial events before they were right on top of us when we live life we go through life and all of a sudden something's happening and we didn't know it was coming Edith Schaeffer once wrote the thing about real life is that important events don't announce themselves Trumpets don't blow, drums don't beat to let you know. Usually something that's going to change your life is a memory before you can stop and be impressed by it. And I noticed that you can tell exactly what's going to happen in that show by the music, you know? If it's nice, sweet music, you know this is going to be a nice, sweet scene. If it's ominous, you know, you can tell that too, you know? For instance, you get in your car and you're driving on the highway and all of a sudden the theme to Jaws starts playing. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't you say, I better slow down, something's going to happen here, right? You know, that sounds ominous. But we don't have that. We don't understand what the moments are that are coming. But Esther did. And she knew, this is God's timing for me. I've got to step up to the plate. It calls us to always be willing to live as God would have us to live. We don't know the the, the crisis moments. But as we read on in chapter 5, verse 2, the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given you. Verse 4, If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. The king is in a good mood. Things seem to be going Esther's way, but Esther is a wise woman. She doesn't just blurt out what she wants. Esther has understood the wisdom that has been passed down from woman to woman to woman, generation after generation. And that wisdom is that the way to a man's heart is through his Stomach Right. I'm going to give this guy a great meal. And when, after he's eaten and things are looking good, then we'll, we'll see how we go on with the, with the details. So they, she invites them to the banquet. And uh, the king and Haman have dinner with her. At dinner again, the king says, Esther, what is it that you want me to do for you? And she says, well, I'll tell you what. Just come back tomorrow for another dinner. And then I'll let you know. All right, so they they end that first dinner. Haman is thrilled that he's getting invited to the queen's, you know, dinner, and and he's hobnobbing with the king and queen, only him. He's feeling good about who he is. After all, he's Haman, you know, all about Haman. And so he goes home, and he starts bragging to his friends about this, this nearness to the king. And as he's telling his buddies about all this great stuff that's happening, out of the corner of his eye, who does he see? Mordecai. The guy who won't bow down. And it just bugs Haman that here I am, you know, so happy being, being with the king and everything. And this guy's, you know, just kind of ruining it for me. You know, he's a downer over here. And so Haman says, you know, I'm not going to wait a year to execute this guy. I want this guy executed tomorrow. So he has some workers build a gallows and tends to hang Mordecai on the gallows the next day. And here's where we see Uh, Point of significance number two. And, uh, you know, finally he gets up and he asks one of his aides, you know, read me the, the chronicles of my rule. You know, the, the list of all the things that I've accomplished. And so the aide takes out the book and he begins to read all that the king has accomplished. All the great things the king has done, the good, wonderful benefits from his rule. They wouldn't mention any bad stuff to the king, just the good stuff, you know. So they're reading all the good stuff. And even you are loved so much that uh, an assassination attempt was foiled uh, on your life. And, and the king wonders... Whatever happened to Mordecai, that guy who saved my life? In chapter 6, verse 3, the king asks, What honor and recognition recognition has Mordecai received for this? Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. And just then there's a noise outside in the courtyard. And the king said, Who is it in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected. All right? His attendants answered, it's Haman standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Who could he want to honor but me? Of course, he wants to honor me. So Haman comes up with this plan. Put him in royal robes, parade him through the streets, let everybody in the whole city see how much you like the guy and honor him in that way. And the king says, great idea, Haman. Verse 10, go at once, the king commanded, get the robe and the horse, do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. And you can almost hear Haman's jaw, bang, hit the floor. I'm coming in here to tell the king to kill this guy and he wants to uh, honor him. And all you can say is, strike one for Haman. Well, while they're still talking about this, the conversation is still going on, it's time for Esther's second dinner. And so Haman and the king, you know, Haman's a little upset, you can tell, but Haman and the king go in for dinner and Esther serves them the dinner. And while she's serving them the dinner, she finally explains what's going on. She, under, she explains the implication of the king's edict to kill the Jews. She convinces him that he was duped into making that decree. He didn't have all the facts. He didn't know how that would affect things. And certainly he didn't realize that she, his queen, would be one of those who were killed. And Mordecai, his hero. The king is furious that somebody would trick him into making that kind of a decree. And he demands to know, who is it that caused me to make that decree? And Esther points across the table at Haman. It's Haman. He's the guilty man. Strike two for Haman. The king is so mad at Haman that literally he gets up from the table and he has to walk it off. He goes out into the garden. You can see him fuming. Remember that face? Okay. He's He's just so so angry with Haman. And while he's out in the garden walking it off, Haman says, you know, I am really getting in trouble here. And so Haman turns to Esther to kind of beg her to, to help him out. And he goes over and he sits on the sofa where she was. And evidently, he touches her. Bad move. Nobody touches the queen. Why do you think we keep all these eunuchs around here, right? Nobody touches the queen. And the king comes back as he sees uh, uh, Haman on the couch with his wife. In chapter 7, verse 8, this is what it says. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, he exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while he's with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face, put a bag over his head. Strike three for Haman. Haman is hung on the gallows he had built for Mordecai. The Jews are saved. Esther inherits all of Haman's estate. Mordecai is given clothes of blue and white, the royal colors, and he's promoted to the king's advisor. Which brings us to the third principle for a significant life. Celebrate God's favor. If you go in chapter 8, verse 16, when the word gets out that the Jews will not be eradicated. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because of fear of the Jews had seized them. In other words, the king likes these people. Let's hop on board and go over to chapter 9, verse 26. Therefore, these days because of everything written in the letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. The word poor means lot but the genocide was established by the casting of lots and so the Jews adopted that word as the name of the holiday that they celebrate their their salvation and their safety and it reminds us how important it is to celebrate our salvation and what we have in the goodness of God towards his people. All through the plot twists in this drama, the lesson is the ability of God to care for His people when they depend on Him. He's always at work in every situation and circumstance, even when things didn't look good. The lesson of significance is live by God's timing, trust in God's sovereignty, celebrate God's work in our lives. Now, Esther is a famous Bible character. We see her central to this story. But let me say this: Esther in God's sight, is no more significant than you. You are a person of significance in God's sight. You are placed in a position. He wants to use you in your gifts. You're uniquely designed. you are providentially placed right here right now. And God is watching. Or all of us. He's saying, "Listen, the center of my will for you is live a life of significance by walking in the light of my timing and my grace and my mercy for you. Serve me in the way that I've designed you to serve here and now, and we will live lives of significance. That's what he's called us to do.